0: Um, so thank you very much to the, the musicians and singers uh, for uh, <laughs> the uh, beautiful renditions of those songs for us, and we get an opportunity to turn now from uh, praising God, one form of worship, uh, to another form of worship, to uh, worshipping God with our minds, as we have an opportunity to think a little bit. Uh, about uh, apologetics, about Christian apologetics. What uh, is that? Uh, I hope I can offer you this evening some helpful, uh, inspiring thoughts uh, that you will find uh, useful and uh, practical about Christian apologetics. Uh, But because I come from a, a philosophy background, I am going to get excited about defining what I mean. Uh, You might think that only a philosopher could get excited about defining something, Uh, but I think when uh, we uh, start uh, thinking about apologetics and and defining it, uh, I hope you'll find my definition something that is helpful and will pay practical uh, dividends. Uh, Before I get all um, systematic on you, though, just a few slides uh, with some interesting thoughts about apologetics. Apologetics. Uh, this is actually the, the death mask of Blaise Pascal, the French philosopher, scientist, mathematician, all-round genius. Uh, you can tell he's an all-round genius uh, because his most famous uh, book uh, is a book that he never actually published, in a sense. It's the notes that he wrote himself about a book that he was intending to get round to writing. Uh, and he never got round to writing the book based on these notes, but after his death, uh, these notes were published, and they're called his his thoughts, or pensies uh, in the French. And in those notes, he says this about um, the order that he's thinking about approaching the reader in. It says, men despise religion. They hate it and are afraid that it might be true. To cure that, we have to begin by showing that religion is not contrary to reason. That it is worthy of veneration and should be given respect. Next, it should be made lovable. Uh, should make the good wish it were true. And then show that it is indeed true. And then he adds these notes. Uh, worthy of veneration because it's properly understood mankind and worthy of affection because it promises the true good. Now I think you can see here in this quote from Pascal that he's thinking about apologetics and about approaching the potential reader of his work in a very rounded, very holistic kind of a way He's not just thinking at the level of what arguments am I going to use to convince people? He's recognising that uh, in dealing with uh, Christianity and questions of its truth, he's dealing with complicated people uh, who are whole persons, who have issues of the heart, uh, issues of the will, as well as issues of the intellect. And he wants to bear all of that in mind when he approaches people. So what is uh, apologetics? Uh, particularly in English, it's a terrible word for us to use for this subject because um, the English uh, use the word apologize uh, to mean to say sorry. Say, oh, terribly sorry, I apologize, I was wrong. And and so the fact that we use this word, which comes from Greek roots, apologetics, makes it sound in English like you're wanting to say sorry that you're a Christian. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, it means uh, precisely the opposite uh, to that. However, a note in uh, the Apologetic Study Bible uh, says that there have been a diversity of approaches taken to defining the meaning, uh, the scope, and the purpose of apologetics. So what I offer you tonight, I don't offer as this is the way to think about apologetics, but I do think it is a, a helpful and a biblically rooted way to think about apologetics. Perhaps the most famous verse in the Bible about apologetics is 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. And this is uh, Rembrandt's famous painting of St Peter in the background I'm there. And this verse says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. And the word that's being translated there as as answer in the Greek is apologia. And it's a term uh, that Peter has taken from the legal system. It's what your lawyer, your defence lawyer, would do when he gets up in court to defend you. And he would give his defence speech, his apologia. Uh, so P- Peter is thinking in terms of a sort of reasoned, rational, public argument in defence of the, re- the hope that Christians have in Jesus. And he says that all Christians should be ready to answer people's questions about why they have hope in Christ. This is not a command to a specific group of Christians. This is just for the evangelists or this is just for the pastors or the teachers. This is for everyone. And then notice at the end of the verse, Peter says, But do this with gentleness and respect. And actually, I'm told by those who know about biblical languages that the word gentleness is talking about your relationship to the person who's asked the question. Uh, Don't um, Bible bash people, in other words. And the word respect here is talking about the Christian's relationship with God. So it's out of respect for God... One is gentle as one shares the truth in love, as the Bible says, with the non-Christian who's asked you to justify yourself. The American Christian philosopher Douglas Groothouse says that there's an artificial separation of evangelism from apologetics. The church has tended to talk about them as, as separate things, and he says this must end. The Apostle Paul, he says, serves as a model for us in that he both proclaimed and defended the gospel in the book of Acts. Jesus also rationally defended his views as well as proclaiming them. The Apostles in the Bible, in other words, don't go to the marketplace, get their uh, soapbox, stand on it with a megaphone, shout at the crowd... Say, um, you've all got to become Christians, you sinners, get off the box and go home. That is not what you find them doing. You find uh, Paul being described as dialoguing with people in the marketplace, uh, in places like Athens. Entering into conversations where he's uh, learning about and understanding the people that he's in conversation with. He's having a, a gentleness and a love for them and their culture. Um, that helps him to communicate the gospel to them. Stephen Collins, who is a Christian archaeologist, interestingly says this, the biblical gospel good news includes not only the message of Jesus' death and resurrection, but also the apologetic evidence to support it. The gospel isn't fully communicated apart from The supporting evidence. Sometimes you will uh, come across people who have the idea that apologetics uh, doesn't work. Uh, You may hear the phrase, uh, you can't argue someone into the kingdom of God. And yeah, okay, I know what that phrase means. Uh, It's a bit like the English saying, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. Uh, so there's a certain truth to this, um, but it's, it's overly simplistic. And uh, when used as an excuse not to engage in apologetics, it's a really bad excuse. Um, just to share one example from my, from my own experience, I, I received an email uh, out of the blue uh, from a student in Venezuela. I've never been to Venezuela, but evidently some of my books have made it there. And this student said this. As a graduate student of philosophy, I'm an eager reader of your books and online articles which have been instrumental in my rejection of agnosticism and naturalism and have contributed strongly to make me a newborn Christian. Now see, I'm not saying I converted her. I'm not saying apologetics and arguments brought her into the kingdom of God. That's overly simplistic. But from her testimony, they played an important role in the process. And I'm sure there's lots of other elements to that process, about friendships with people that she knew in Venezuela, about the work of God through the Holy Spirit in her heart and her life that's going on there. Um, But apologetics is a biblical part of the process of evangelism. And apologetics is, yes it is rational, but it is relational as well. And I think that the emphasis that we've had culturally on apologetics as it's all about rationality and arguments uh, and so on, um, stereotypically, and I, I, I venture where angels fear to tread, but stereotypically that's meant that it's been a subject that has traditionally appealed more to men in churches than to women and I think that's again a a misunderstanding in a sense of apologetics uh, and a wrong view of it and I'm really encouraged to see lots of women here in the audience Rice Brooks says this, Christ commanded his followers to advance his message by the irresistible force of love and the power of truth of love and the power of truth. It's both about rationality and relationship. And again, the Bible says, talks about speaking the truth in love. Give this reason with gentleness and respect. It's very holistic in its approach. And I love this quote from uh, Nicola Veal. She says, People in relationships need to inquire, learn, and build on what they know about each other. Relationships characterised by thoughtlessness are going nowhere. We should build relationships in a rational way. They're they're not opposites, they go hand in hand. The Christian faith faith is about a relationship with God And like any other relationship, this requires thought. What about apologetics and spiritual warfare? Or is it apologetics or spiritual warfare? Or what's what's the relationship here? Well, I would say apologetics is spiritual warfare 2 Corinthians 10 verses 4 to 5 the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world not swords and spears and so on, on the contrary they, the weapons we fight with, have the divine power to demolish strongholds now clearly that's not thinking in terms of like castles because he's not talking about worldly warfare. He's thinking about strongholds of the mind of ideas that are opposed to the kingdom of God. We demolish strongholds with these divinely powerful weapons. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So apologetics is spiritual warfare. Francis Schaeffer has already been uh, mentioned once in this conference. Said that the purpose of apologetics is not just to win an argument or a discussion that the people with whom we are in contact may become Christians and then live under the lordship of Christ. He said he was only interested in, in one kind of apologetics, the kind that leads in two directions. One direction is to lead people to Christ as saviour, but the other is that after they're Christians, for them to realise the lordship of Christ in their whole life, so they become disciples of Christ which includes wanting to be uh, partakers of the Great Commission and being uh, ready to give a reason for the hope that is within them. So those are a few perhaps apparently random thoughts. Now I get a little bit more systematic on you. Um, I'm going to give you a definition. Of apologetics, There are three clauses to this definition, and each of these clauses contains three really important ideas. So by the end of this evening, I will have given you nine ideas. So it's, I know, it's, I'm, I'm dishing a lot out to you, uh, but we'll take it a step at a time. And I think by the time we come back to this definition uh, at the end, I think you'll have a really good framework in mind that is actually helpful in the process of engaging in apologetics. You know, If you just define apologetics in a very simplistic way as something like um, giving the evidence for believing in Jesus, then when you're engaged in doing apologetics and evangelism, or as some people are, are now moving to call it persuasive evangelism, that marries the two together, persuasive evangelism, Um, You think, oh, what do I do in this situation? Oh, I ought to give the evidence. Well, yeah. (laughs) Um, But what evidence? How? How do you engage in that? What's your approach going to be? It's not very helpful as a definition. And I think this one is at least a bit more helpful. So, thinking about it, I reckon that apologetics is, is the art, it's not a science, it's the art, of persuasively advocating Christian spirituality across spiritualities. Doing that through the responsible use of rhetoric as being objectively true and good and beautiful. So not just saying Christianity is true, we're saying it's also good and it's beautiful. So we'll need to um, highlight what we think about spirituality, Christian spirituality, and then uh, what we mean by these terms uh, of rhetoric, and there's three elements to that, and then the the three terms of of truth and goodness and beauty. So, here we go. Find where I am in my notes. Right. Um, Has anyone ever seen the the famous uh, early German sci-fi film Metropolis. Uh, if you like sci-fi cinema, it's uh, well worth tracking down, particularly the latest version that they've uh, found new bits. Um, after its initial release, it was heavily edited down, and then gradually people find more and more bits of the film and cobble it together. And um, over time, over my lifetime, um, the film has become a lot more understandable as to what the heck it's going on about, um, because we've found more of the film. And... I was watching it recently and I suddenly realised that the plot of Fritz Lang's Metropolis chimes very much with what I think about spirituality. And the film begins and ends with this interesting quotation. Uh, The mediator between the head and the hands must be the heart. Now the film applies that to social... Philosophy. It's thinking about how should society be justly ordered. But that gives us an in to thinking about spirituality. I think spirituality is about the head and the heart and the hands, if you like. It is how you relate to reality through the combination of what you think is true and false about reality, your attitudes. Towards what you think is true and false about reality. Whether you're positive about the fact that you think there's a God or like the demons, you believe but tremble because you have a very negative attitude towards God. And the combination of what you think is, is real and, and how that affects you, how that moves you and engages your heart will lead you to behave and act in certain ways. So, for example, because you believe that there is a God who listens to prayers, who loves you, and so on, and you're positively disposed towards him, you might bother spending some time praying to God. Why on earth would you bother spending much time praying to God if you were pretty sure that he didn't exist? Or if you thought, well, maybe he exists, but he hates me. You know? So what we think and how our hearts react to it work out in our actions and behaviours in the world. So spirituality is a way of relating to reality through the combination of your beliefs, your attitudes and your actions. And it becomes... A sort of self-reinforcing feedback loop, if you like. You put it like this. Um, Because I believe certain things, I have certain attitudes, I behave in a certain way, I do things like go to church. But because I go to church, that tends to give me opportunities to reinforce my beliefs about reality. So my beliefs get stronger and my heart grows warmer towards the Lord as I worship him, and so on. And that leads me to wanting to do more for him, and so on. So it's self-reinforcing. And you can see that that's kind of true of any spirituality. Any spirituality is going to have some beliefs, some attitudes, some characteristic ways of behaving because of that. You know, An atheist you could say has a spirituality, there'll even be some overlap between an atheist's spirituality and a Christian spirituality, but there'll be crucial differences in all three of those areas, perhaps. A Buddhist has a spirituality, but they will fill in those categories in different ways than a Christian or an atheist might do. So, when it comes to Christian spirituality, it is, of course, a Christ-centred and directed form of spirituality. And, of course, it wasn't me that came up with this head, hearts, and hand idea. It was God. And Jesus seems to have got there before me in telling us about it. His answer to the question about the greatest commandment was that we should love God with With our heart, with all your mind, and with all your strength. It's put in slightly different ways in in the different gospel reports of it. Um, Some mention soul, some don't. All of them are referring back to a passage in Deuteronomy 6 as well. And clearly they all mean love God with everything that you are. But I think it's fair to say in modern terms that this description fits within This categorisation of spirituality as being about our beliefs and our attitudes, our commitments of the heart and what we do. And Christian spirituality, beginning with loving God with everything we are, leads us to loving your neighbour as yourself in that context. So it's a way of life characterised by love, uh, centred upon and directed by Christ. Who of course says that he is the divinely appointed gateway into that form of life. You enter through Christ, I am the gate, through the forgiveness that he displayed on the cross. And that's how you enter into a forgiven loving relationship with God that transforms your relationship to yourself and the world around you and the people around you. Now once you have this schema in mind, you see it popping up all over the place in scripture. Uh, So here's Acts 2.37, where Peter has just given the first persuasive evangelistic sermon at Pentecost. When the people heard this, the things that Peter was saying about what had happened to Jesus and the resurrection and we're eyewitnesses of this and so on, giving them evidence. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart they had a, an attitudinal response to it. It moved them such that they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? This is not just a sort of abstract intellectual belief that we can file away for next time we're playing a round of trivial pursuit or down the pub quiz. Now all that might come in handy knowing that Jesus is the Messiah. If you really think that that's true, it's, it's something that's got to affect you positively or negatively and going to lead you to, to acting for or against it. And of course, uh, 1 Peter 3, uh, 15, you can see those categories there again, breaking out all the way through. So that's about spirituality and Christian spirituality. Now remember, the second bit of the definition was about rhetoric. And there are, again, there are three elements to, to rhetoric. Um, rhetoric has something of a bad name in Western culture these days. Um, we might say, say, for politician's speech. Oh, that was all rhetoric. Meaning he wasn't really persuasive. He was just manipulating us. But that's not how the ancients, like Aristotle here, uh, thought of rhetoric. Aristotle wrote one of the most famous uh, textbooks on rhetoric uh, called On Rhetoric. Um, that's the kind of guy Aristotle was, you know, does what it says on the label. Uh, and here's Aristotle's definition of rhetoric he said it's the power to observe the persuasiveness of which any particular matter admits. Now notice this is is an objective definition. He's not saying it's the power to, to persuade people about something, whether or not it is persuasive. It's not like the kind of advertising that distracts you from actually learning anything about the car by draping a long-loaded blonde in a bikini over the bonnet. That's manipulative rhetoric. Rather, it's the the kind of advertising that actually lets you know about the mile fuel economy of the car and the fact that it's got a five-year warranty. You see the difference? So rhetoric is about noticing what really is persuasive about something and then helping your audience to notice that persuasive thing. So you're kind of acting as an, as an introduction agency between your audience and the subject matter. And Aristotle said this, of the modes, the ways of persuasion furnished by the spoken word, there are three kinds. The first kind, which comes from the Greek word ethos, depends on the personal character of the speaker. Their, their goodness, if you like. Do they come across to you like a used car salesman? Does that translate? Used car salesman? Who's just trying to flog you a car that's probably been bolted together by three that came in yesterday. Uh, Or does he seem like a reliable, honest, trustworthy person that you're getting this information from? The second, and the Greek word pathos. Uh, is putting the audience into a certain frame of mind. It's to do do with beauty. Um, Tchaikovsky, the Russian composer Tchaikovsky, uh, famously wrote a symphony called the Pathetic Symphony. And again, that's really unfortunate in English, because now we have the English word pathetic, which means really rubbish, terrible. Uh, And so you say, yeah, Tchaikovsky wrote this really great symphony. It's pathetic. Okay, what? <laughs> Makes no sense. Um, but of course, in the, in the original, pathetique means really pulling on the heartstrings, um, really engaging you in the subject matter. And the third, the term logos, uh, which many Christians will know uh, from the beginning of John's Gospel, is the, the word translated as word in the beginning was the logos, and the logos was with God, and the logos was God. Uh, the third one, logos, on the proof, uh, it's about rationality, the proof provided by the words of the speech itself. It's to do with truth and reasoning. Now, of course, these two sets of three concepts line up with one another. Um, you want to judge beliefs by the question, are they true or not? You want to judge the actions of a spirituality by the question, are they good actions or evil actions? And think about this, this is is interesting to think about. The attitudes of the heart, uh, the kind of character, if you like, morally speaking, that a spirituality forms in a person as they dedicate themselves to following it. Well, you judge that by Beauty, In the sense that we might say someone is a beautiful person. Not because they look glamorous and that we might put them on a magazine cover. They might never make a magazine cover by those kind of standards of skin deep beauty. But nevertheless we want to say they've got a really beautiful character. I love being around them. They're such a wonderful person. That kind of beauty... Here's Paul again in Colossians 4, verses 5 to 6. And he mentions all three elements of rhetoric that Aristotle mentions, and he mentions them in the same order that Aristotle mentions them. I don't know whether he'd ever read Aristotle, but Paul clearly knew his uh, classical Greek uh, education. He says, When you're with unbelievers, always make good use of the time, be pleasant. Have good ethos. Hold their interest when you speak the message. Have good pathos with your audience. Choose your words carefully and be ready to give answers to anyone who asks questions. Which immediately puts you in mind of 1 Peter 315. So 1 Peter 315. Again, those categories. Will be there. What about our our final clause in our definition about these uh, three values of truth and goodness and beauty? Uh, They're traditionally in philosophy called the transcendental values. That's nothing to do with uh, transcendental meditation, Um, rather, it means uh, categories that transcend go above and beyond the distinctions that we make between different subject areas that you might study at a university because they're they're values that you can apply to all sorts of different subjects. So these are not just relevant to this or that area of inquiry. They transcend. John Cottingham, who's a British Christian philosopher, puts it this way. I think this makes the idea clear. He says... To everyone's surprise, the increasing consensus among philosophers today is that some kind of objectivism of truth and value is correct. Now, to say that something is is objective, it's basically to say that it's the kind of thing that we discover about reality and not the kind of thing that we invent about reality. It's the kind of thing we, we stub our toe against, as it were, rather than the kind of thing that depends upon us. It doesn't depend on me and what I think, what I happen to feel, or upon us and what we happen to feel or think or decide or vote or whatever. You whatever. Know, however many of us vote that the sun orbits the earth it's still going to be true that the earth orbits the sun. That's an objective fact. And people in our culture are used to thinking of objective facts when it comes to the physical, material world, but many of them have lost the idea that there are objective facts about non-physical realities, including values such as truth and goodness and beauty. But John Cottingham is saying, actually, more and more philosophers today are coming back to the ancient idea, the biblical idea, that values are objective. He says, uh, truth beauty and goodness carry with them uh, the sense of, of requirement or of a demand upon us. The true is that which is worthy of belief. It's worthy of belief because it's accurately reflecting reality to us. The beautiful is that which is worthy of admiration. Its worthiness doesn't depend upon whether or not I admire it. It's something that if I do admire it, I'm within my rights, as it were, to admire it because of its qualities. And the good is that which is worthy of choice. It's worthy of choice because it is what I ought to do. Again, Paul in Philippians 4, verse 8, he says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true. You know, whatever whatever kind of view of things you happen to like, you know, whatever floats your boat, says, Whatever is true, whatever is noble. I think you could take that as, a, as synonymous with, with beautiful. Whatever is right, um, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. So by the time you've gone through these three clauses of our definition, and noticed that they each have three concepts and that they all line up with each other and there's a relationship here between them you notice that you can plot it all in a fantastic three by three graph like this uh, which, is, which is pleasant. Um, so you're thinking in terms of spiritualities, there's Christian spirituality and there are non-Christian spiritualities spiritualities are composed of beliefs, communicated through logos through reason and argument judged by the value of truth. And the attitudes, the heart responses of a spirituality are communicated through pathos and judged by the value of beauty. And the actions of a spirituality are communicated through the ethos, the character that it forms and so on. Uh, And judged by the value of of goodness. You can see there's actually a sort of quite an overlap between uh, the heart and the actions, the ethos and the pathos uh, undergirded by the logos. So, now when we come back to that definition, it'll all click into place for you, that apologetics is the art of persuasively advocating Christian spirituality across spiritualities through the responsible use of rhetoric good rhetoric, objective rhetoric not manipulation as being objectively true and good and beautiful Here we go. now faced with that kind of a vision of what apologetics is and the kind of role that it plays within The life of a Christian disciple I'm tempted to sort of on the one hand say wow how brilliant, how exciting how thrilling and on the other hand to take a big gulp and go good grief and I'm sure you might feel the same way Um, you could say I guess that apologetics is a weighty joy in life and isn't it the, the weightiest things in life that are actually the source of the most deep joys anyway? Um, ask anyone in a marriage, I'm sure. Apologetics isn't merely an act of loving service to God and to neighbour. Think of Mark 12.30, 1, three fifteen again. But it's something that's actually good for our own spiritual maturity. As well. I think that just as spiritual maturity should produce an enthusiasm for apologetics, for persuasive evangelism, for loving other people by trying to as winsomely and convincingly as possible share the most important thing in life to you with them, so I think an enthusiasm for apologetics should lead to greater spiritual maturity. Have a look at uh, Colossians 4, 4 4-6. Here's a fantastic quote from the English theologian Alastair McGrath. He's a a prolific author. Sometimes I think he must have a a basement full of clones of himself who are just producing books. I don't know how he does it. Um, But here's what he uh, says, and I think this uh, encapsulates uh, how I feel about the the vision that I'd love you to, to grasp hold of for apologetics in the life of the church. McGrath says, we cannot allow Christ to reign in our hearts if he does not also guide our thinking. The discipleship of the mind is just as important as any other part of the process by which we grow in our faith. We must see ourselves as a standard bearers for the spiritual, ethical, imaginative, intellectual vitality of the Christian faith. Working out why we believe that certain things are true and what difference they make to the way we live our lives. Above all, we must expand our vision of the Christian gospel. It is not just uh, an eternal fire insurance policy. There is a lot more to it. Apologetics involves enabling people to glimpse for themselves, to glimpse something of the glory and the beauty, the objective beauty, let me add of God true apologetics engages not only the mind but also the heart and we impoverish the gospel if we neglect the impact it has on all of our God-given faculties the gospel is a multifaceted diamond reflecting the beauty of the light of God into the whole of our life and through us everything in God's world that we come into contact with finally McGrath says this we are thus called upon to demonstrate and to embody the truth, beauty and goodness of faith we can't be at one step removed from this apologetics it's something that has to be capturing us in our discipleship to Christ. Um, we're caught up in Christ, and part of that will be wanting to share Him with people in this biblical, responsible, loving, relational, rational true, good and beautiful manner let me end with just suggesting five uh, practical first steps in apologetics you can study and pray into relevant scriptures and we've looked at a lot that are in that list there this evening um, but that would be a really good theme for a Bible study group to look at some of these scriptures and think about them. We need to foster an appropriate openness about our own doubts and questions about the truth and goodness and beauty of Christianity. Because we always need to seek honest answers to honest questions. Now anyone who's engaged in apologetics will know that sometimes questions that people ask are not honest. They're just a smokescreen. They're not waiting for you to answer that question before they've fired off five more in the hopes that you'll never get around to answering them. But that that is not always the case. People do have honest questions, and as Francis Schaeffer said, we need to give honest answers to honest questions. And we need to be honest with ourselves first and foremost if we're going to be doing that because we need to be authentic because love cares about truth and not just sweeping issues under the carpet but loving one another and feeling safe enough in the love of the Christian community to be able to say things like do you know I find this passage of scripture here really difficult really difficult to understand, really difficult to believe or really morally difficult? How can I believe that that's true or that that's good or that that is beautiful? Um, and be open and honest about that. Um, something I sometimes say to non-Christian audiences when I'm speaking to them about, about thinking about these big worldview issues and choosing a worldview, choosing a spirituality. I tell them, not to look for the perfect worldview with no problems, no issues. Um, because even given that God reveals to us through the Bible an infallible word, our finite human understanding of that word is not infallible. We get things wrong, we learn... Uh, the church develops its theology over time. We develop our understanding of reality in science and the queen of sciences as Thomas Aquinas said, is theology. Um, so there is a process of learning and development going on there. And we need to be open and honest about that and not try and look for the worldview that has everything buttoned down, everything answered. You're not going to find it. But what you can look for is the worldview that seems to have the fewest the least significant problems. I'm always reminded of St. Peter's question to Jesus, Lord, where else shall we go? Okay, there might be some difficulties in how I understand the world when I look at it in a Christian way, but I think those difficulties pale into insignificance when I compare it to the difficulties that I'd have with trying to look at the world through the lenses of a materialistic worldview or a pantheistic worldview, and so on. And that's good to bear in mind um, that seeking the truth, we're fallible, and it's a, it's a comparative exercise rather than setting the bar so high that you're never going to find anything that satisfies you. Learn without ceasing at an appropriate level. Remember I said 1 Peter 3.15 is addressed to all Christians. But of course, different Christians have different capacities, different levels of, of intellect. Let's face it. you know. Um, and indeed, Paul in the New Testament says, it's a good thing that the, the gospel is not just revealed to the intellectuals, isn't it? God has chosen the foolish things in the world's eyes uh, to shame them and so on. Um, And yet he also says, don't be childish in your thinking, mature in your understanding. Uh, And so we have to um, give our best and that's all we can do. Give our best uh, to it and help one another uh, along the road. There are plenty of books and websites and podcasts. There are so many resources, so many resources freely available through the internet uh, today uh, particularly that we, li- we live in a golden age of resources for carrying out this vision. And finally once you've started doing that, put yourself in a position to give your apologia for the hope. Start building relationships with non-Christians. Not simply so that you can chalk up you know, how many conversions you've made this year genuinely, you've got to genuinely want to have relationship with those non-Christians and befriend them and love them whether or not they ever turn to Christ because it's what God does um, but as appropriate as the occasion opens the, the door for that conversation um, for that gift of the, just the right book at Christmas or whatever Take those opportunities. Uh, When people ask you a question, have a go at giving an answer, at saying something something positive about the truth and goodness and beauty of Christianity and your experience of it and how it affects your whole life, including the life of your mind. And if they ask you a question and you don't know the answer, say, well, that's a really interesting, good question. I don't know the answer. I will go away and have a think about that I'll do a bit of research, and if you're really interested, I'll get back to you on it. Don't think you've got to know everything before you can go and evangelise. If you set set knowing everything as a standard, well, only God's going to be able to evangelise, isn't he? So for us to get a look in, you have to be willing to step out there knowing that you don't know everything. Um, and just be open and honest about it and that honesty and openness is part of commending Christianity through your ethos through the integrity of your character saying well I don't know that's a really interesting or difficult question but also not saying well I'm going to ignore it and sweep it under the carpet and just have blind faith because that's not integrity either you see Um, so be encouraged this is a a weighty joy Um, but we have one another we have more resources today than ever before and of course most importantly we have God and if God's on our side then the gates of hell cannot uh, stand against the kingdom of God Uh, we are called to be faithful in playing our role God demands that we're faithful. He doesn't demand that we're successful in terms of you know, notching up the numbers and so on. He doesn't demand that we're successful, but he does demand that we're faithful, and doing that is, is good for us, uh, good for other people, good for the world. So I commend apologetics to you, and I'll finish there. Thank you. Thank you too. Oops. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was quite interesting your approach towards mm-hmm. apologetics and I want to ask you what is the challenges that postmodern um, thinking towards uh, he, Christian apologetics mm. and should we uh, do something to change uh, people who have such uh, thinking mm. that, that's a really interesting question um I'll say a little something, but I'll also refer you to a resource that you might find useful. A couple of years ago, I was uh, speaking at a conference in Romania on exactly this theme about evangelism in a a postmodern context. And I gave a talk about the differences between modernism and postmodernism and looking at Christianity as a pre-modern worldview uh, and saying uh, a plague on both your houses. As it were, to the modernist and the postmodernist. And if you go to uh, YouTube, um, I have a YouTube channel, and you can find um, the video of that lecture on my YouTube ch- channel. Um, I think that postmodernism is is dying out. Uh, at least my experience in the English context is that ten years ago. Um, postmodernism was um, a challenge in, say, talking to students in British schools but that it, it hardly ever is now and the questions that students ask me that there are very modernist sounding questions like you know, how can you believe in a God when there's evil or is there any evidence that Jesus even existed and so on. They're questions about truth and evidence or questions about the goodness of scriptural's moral teaching. You know, how can you defend the Bible's view on homosexuality, or something like this? And some philosophers, like um, William Lane Craig, who's mentioned earlier today, say that it's a bit of a myth that we live in a postmodern culture, because he says people tend to be objectivists when it comes to matters of science and the physical world. And he says, no one reads the instructions on the bottle of aspirin as a postmodernist literary critic, saying texts don't have any inherent meaning. Um, there's no truth being communicated here by the author. I'll just take as many tablets as I like, because that's the number of tablets that's right for me. Because people don't do that because they know if they get it wrong they could die <laughs> people only um, start talking about subjectivity when it comes to issues of morality say so there's no objective right or wrong but Bill Craig points out that's not actually postmodernism. that's a very modernistic view that's right back to say the the logical positivist school of, of philosophy in the, in the 1920s who said um, the, only, the only language that even has any meaning is the kind of language that you can check out with your five senses but because moral language can't be tested scientifically like that they said it, it's meaningless they're, they're, to say it's wrong to murder they said is literally meaningless gobbledygook um, but as John Cottingham, the quote I had from John Cottingham saying, well, well that's all blown over. Um, questions of, of truth and goodness and, and even of the objectivity of beauty are coming back into vogue among Western philosophers. Um, and I think it's only a few very extreme um, thinkers who really have a kind of postmodern view, who will really deny all. Um, truth as well as, as value who will say that there is no uh, factual reality that language doesn't connect us with truth or reality um, everything is relative um, and to such people the question to ask when they tell you that view when they try and communicate to you using language their view that it is true that language cannot communicate truth (laughs) well point out that contradiction or even there's a a British theologian called D.A. Carson who who did this Uh, it's It's a little bit naughty, I think, in a way, because it's not particularly loving. I guess it depends on your character, if you can get away with this. Uh, He was doing uh, a talk on postmodernism, and someone stood up and and gave this whole, texts don't mean anything, language doesn't communicate, we can't know the truth, and so on. And he he responded to her by saying, oh, that's really fascinating, the way in which you've just used irony and uh, uh, deconstructing uh, thinking in order to reaffirm my view that, that it's true that language really does communicate truth and factual reality to us. He said, No, 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 you've completely misunderstood me. I'm not saying that. I'm saying the opposite. I'm saying that you. And he kept doing this for a while until the point sank in. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I well remember my, my days when I first went to university. I went to a university that had a very postmodern English department, and I studied English in my first year there. And switched to philosophy thereafter because the the English um, literary philosophy that was dominating at that time, back in the early 1990s, yes I'm, I'm that old, um, <laughs> so annoyed me um, that uh, I was drawn into uh, the philosophy department where at least uh, you know if they didn't believe in God it was because they thought it, it was wrong. To think that there was a God and there were arguments to be had about it and would encourage you to argue about it and try and see what the truth was. Um, Because at least if you agree that there is truth, you can then have a fruitful disagreement about what the truth is. (laughs) If you don't think that there's any such thing as truth, well you can't have a fruitful disagreement about anything, including the fact that you can't have a fruitful disagreement with anyone about whether or not there's truth Um, so I point that out to people and basically say look do you want to take part in this conversation in which case you have to take on board the fact that you are assuming certain things about truth and reality and we do have some common ground to build upon and you know that really in your heart of hearts don't you and we know they know that because they're built in the image of God um or, you know, mm-hmm. go away and come back when you've had a little think. Go to the naughty step. Alright, something interesting. question? Предвамена на времето. Окей. Okay. Ще приключваме. Говорителите са на разположение и след а, лекциите. Можете да проведете, колкото си разговори и искате с тях. Благодаря ви, че да дойдохте. Утре вечер а, ще има отново лекция на апологетика. Утре сутринта конференцията продължава в 8:45. Искрено ви моля за точност. ще има бонус за който да дадеш. А добре, пожано и приятна вечер. Благодарение с вас. С